You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, so here's another conversation I was just really looking forward to digging into. Amy Perko is the CEO of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. How much do I love this topic, Carol Masser? And you do too. We've I been talking yeah. so much about higher education and sports. She joins us from Fayetteville, North Carolina. Amy, really good to have you with us. Uh, talk to me about the Knight Commission, first of all, because I feel like people hear intercollegiate athletics, their brains automatically go to the NCAA. But what you're doing is so important because it's independent. Well, thanks for having me, Jason and Carol. Sure, just a real brief overview of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. We're funded by the Knight Foundation, and we are an independent group and composed of really uh, higher education leaders, um, just national thought leaders, former university presidents, current presidents, former college athletes, all who share, um, you know, really a, a passion about college sports and its role in the educational mission. And in a nutshell, our work really has been focused on keeping the college in college sports. Our group does have a legacy of leading transformational change that prioritizes the education, health, safety, and success of college athletes. Uh, One one of our signature reforms that kind of puts it into perspective in terms of the the reforms we've led, um, really to start this decade, the NCAA adopted one of our proposals that we had championed for a long time, and that is one that requires uh, sports teams to be on track to graduate more than half of their players in order to be eligible for March Madness, postseason bowl games, and other national championships. So, Amy, one thing I want to ask you as you're talking, um, I really love what you guys are about and your mission, but I do wonder, as college sports increasingly has become big business, how do your initiatives to prioritize things like education, health, safety, and success for these college athletes in college sports, how does it get tougher to do? How do the kind of the goals and the, the missions of being very true and safe for the athletes kind of get lost because it is such a big money-making thing for so many colleges and universities? Yeah, great question. And, and one of our uh, our major initiatives currently is is really to make a have a major examination of the Division One model itself. Um, and we believe, frankly, that that model is broken and needs to be overhauled. Um, big money is obviously what a lot of people think about when they think about college sports. Uh, the NCAA itself is made up of over a thousand universities. Um, and, and mostly universities in Divisions two and Divisions three that you don't hear a lot about. But, you know, just as an example in terms of the differences at Division three universities that don't provide scholarships, one out of every six students are athletes at those universities. So those universities really, um, you know, see athletics as an opportunity for recruiting, recruiting students who want to continue participating in their passion um, and Division One schools, obviously, those participating in in uh, March Madness and and now in the fall and in football uh, bowl subdivision and and the college football playoff, that really captures the attention of America, and so that's what everyone associates with college sports. Um, but and that's really been our focus as well in terms of kind of the big money um, 
college programs yeah. and the money, frankly, that distorts the values. And, uh, you know, just in Division One, we, we held a seminar, uh, a webinar yesterday that broke down Division One finances. And just in, you know, a, a broad scope of uh, looking at the financial landscape, Division One schools' athletic budgets range from $4 million all the way over $200 million. Unbelievable. So uh, those 351 schools, March Madness really is the glue that holds that very diverse uh, group of schools together. And, you know, even in big-time football, uh, there are 130 schools in that kind of competitive league, if you will. And those budgets range from $16 million, again, to more than uh, $200 million. So it's it's that model that's our focus, and we feel like it, it really needs to be overhauled and changed. Right. So let's talk about that uh, briefly, and then we're going to come back and, and talk about it some more, I think. Um, I mean, listen, yeah. we've seen the Big Ten essentially make a decision this week to get back to football. That's a lot about economics. We know that to be true. We know that to be true about the SEC and the ACC, you know, the Pac-12 now being really the only holdout. How much do you worry about the influence of big money, especially with big-time football? Yeah, it's it's a major concern, and and that's what, you know, this pandemic and what's happened um, with, frankly, the disjointed and fragmented decision-making about who's going to play football and under what conditions are they going to play, that's really uh, shown a harsh spotlight on an issue that that we've been studying for years and and is an issue that's really front and center um, on our agenda currently, and that is the role of big-time football in all of this. Um, What I think this has brought to light is that FBS football is really only an NCAA sport in name only. Yes, The NCAA as an organization does not control FBS football, and the NCAA, which people really have no idea, the NCAA doesn't get any money from FBS football. The NCAA gets all of its money from March Madness, that tournament that captures our attention in March. The college football playoff is managed independently of the NCAA. So we think that's that's one of the major dysfunctions in college sports because college football really is the biggest engine driving college sports. And I could not agree with you more. The haves and the have-nots in, in many ways across all of society and in athletics, that's certainly been true. I also feel like this notion of who benefits from college athletics and especially just sticking with college football has really been laid bare in, in so many ways. What do we do about that? Well, again, the, the pandemic really has um, has exposed the fragmentation and, um, you know, what, what I was talking about earlier, that the NCAA doesn't control college football, and yet it's the biggest engine driving uh, all of college sports. And so, you know, our view is that that has to be addressed. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, the, the system, again – you know, college presidents are ultimately in charge right. of this system, and with with every crisis, there's an opportunity. And we think the opportunity here is for leaders to 
really rethink and reimagine and restructure college sports in ways that are more financially responsible and, and most importantly, uh, fair to the college athletes. Um, so what do they there, do? There what's a, what's of, an easy first step? Sorry to interrupt you. What's an easy first step? Yeah, no. Well, um, two things. Uh, one is that uh, there are major changes being considered to the rules on name, image, likeness yes. that allows college athletes, that will allow college athletes to, for the first time, be able to monetize uh, their individual name, image, likeness. Um, you know, the NCAA is prepared to move forward uh, with with that major change that will provide uh, opportunities for athletes and, you know, really allow them to be treated just like, you know, students on campus and allow them the opportunity to be social media influencers, as an example. Um, unfortunately, there's still not uniformity. Um, the NCAA sent a proposal to Congress to get some help because there are various states now that have adopted their their own potential legislation that's that's differing, and we believe there needs to be some uniformity. But you know, even among the NCA leaders, there's not uniformity, and so you know that's that's the first area to come together uh, with a uniform proposal uh, where Congress can provide some help instead of some differing proposals that that currently exist. But again, secondly, we think you know the model itself, uh, FBS football. Um, you know, it, it needs to either be all out or all in yeah. in terms of um, in terms of the governance of the system, in terms of um, looking at the money in the system, and the college football playoff um, generates you know over four hundred million dollars that the FBS schools uh, retain, and again, that doesn't that doesn't go toward the NCAA at all. So there are a lot of questions there as it relates to model in terms of where does the money go and where should the money go you know are athletes provided um, adequate benefits as it relates to long-term health care and and um, other types of benefits that that ultimately will, will ensure that this experience does lead toward uh, their long-time success which is really the objective here well that's what I think about too Amy is you know Jason and I have spent time at, you know, Radio Row at the Super Bowl, and there you have professional athletes who get an injury or something, and then all of a sudden, you know, their career is over, and they don't, they're not financially set, and they don't really have a, a, a you know, you know, what's next, you know, a second career. Mm -hmm. And I do wonder about mm -hmm. college students that all go off and they do well in college, and yet maybe that's it for them. And are we doing enough in, at colleges and universities to make sure that, okay, go play, you know, go do your thing, but make sure you do have a plan B. Right. Absolutely. And, and again, you know, the Knight Commission exists because we believe in the value of college sports. Um, but we also agree that, that this model, uh, as I said, just at the start needs an overhaul. You know, over the past decade, just 52 public universities that are part of the what we call the Power Five conferences, those that generate the most revenue through their uh, lucrative conference networks and those that, you know, occupy the top 20 in college football, um, they had huge revenue increases over the, over the past decade of up 66%. Um, unfortunately, those, those revenue increases disproportionately went to coaches' salaries, administrative non-coaching staff, 
and facilities where those 52 universities now hold more than $9 billion in athletics debt. Um, so again, there needs to be a, a better system that will put the brakes on, on the excessive right. spending, particularly in the coaching and administrative salary, and ensure that the money is going, again, towards um, uh, benefiting the athletes yeah. in ways that are consistent with uh, the mission of college sports. All right. Well, we loved this conversation. Great. Thank you so much. Loved Amy Perko, CEO of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. Definitely want to keep in touch with her. And Carol, you know, one of the things I thought about right at the end when she was talking about that is we had Amani Toomer who went to the University of Michigan, mm-hmm. uh, played for the New York Giants, as I'm sure you know, uh, won a Super Bowl. And one of the things he said is when he was at the University of Michigan, his coach got half a million dollars from Nike for him and his yeah. teammates to wear Nike shoes. You know what Amani Toomer got? Nothing. Zippo. Yeah. And to add insult to injury, he couldn't tape his cleats the way he wanted because he would cover up the swoosh. Yeah, not okay. Not it's not okay. okay. It's That's not okay. not okay. So uh, yeah. the work that the Knight Commission is doing is really, really uh, important. So our thanks to Amy Perko for that conversation. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. Well, can I just say our next guest background man is just way cool, super high tech, someone you would see maybe in a Jason Bourne movie, something like that. I mean, he's a scientist, he's an investor, he's a professor of management at MIT, he's a professor of IT and marketing, professor in the Institute for Data Systems and Society, where he co-leads MIT's initiative on the digital economy. I know already I just want to sit down and talk to him for an hour. His book just out, In the Hype Machine, How Social Media Disrupts Our Elections, Our Economy, and Our health and how we must adapt. So I'm so delighted to wrap up our day today with Sanan Arl. He is on the phone in Brooklyn, New York. Sanan, so nice to have you here with Jason and myself. Um, Tell us about this book, because I feel like it's so relevant to kind of where we are in our world right now and where we can see the good and the bad at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. So this is 20 years of research and four years of writing. It's the research that's cited in that hot uh, documentary, The Social Dilemma, which is on Netflix right now. Yes. And, you know, really it's about how social media is disrupting our world, our elections, our democracy, our economy, our public health, you know, COVID misinformation, um, and how we're going to adapt. So it goes under the hood of social media from my experience researching and working in the industry for 20 years. And then it really asked the question, what can we do? If we rolled up our sleeves and tried to fix this problem, what would we do? So let's start a little bit with how we got here, if we can, Sadan, because I was thinking back to a conversation we had yesterday about a different book with a satirist, P.J. O'Rourke, and he has a great essay, and I'm just going to read you the title because I think you'll get a chuckle out of it. Whose bright idea was it to make sure that every idiot in the world was in touch with every other idiot? Now, that is one read on social media. Um, And yet we know that there are some benefits, but how did it go so wrong? You know, this is such a good question. I love that, by the way. You got to send me that. I'm going to read it for sure tonight. That sounds great. Um, You know, listen, we have seen a decade of techno utopianism about how social media was going to connect the world and free speech and access to health-saving information, and it's going to liberate everyone and so on, followed by a decade of techno-dystopianism where Elon Musk is saying, 
you know, AI is going to destroy the world, and you have Roger McNamee's Zuck, and you have The Social Dilemma, and before that, the great hack documentary on Netflix, which is uh, similar. Uh, and so what this book tries to do is to transcend the utopian view and the dystopian view of O'Rourke and others uh, to kind of really say, listen, there is promise here. It describes a number of different examples of the promise of social media. And it's undeniable that this uh, technology, in terms of our ability to cooperate, collaborate uh, at scale, is amazing what we can accomplish together with the technology. But also, we are very aware now of all of the tremendous potential peril for our democracies, our economies, and so on. How did we get here is a uh, confluence of uh, events that happened. And in the book, I describe the four major levers that are steering this ship, which are the money, code, norms, and laws. The money is the business models, which create the incentives for how the okay. platforms design themselves and how we work. The norms, how we adopt and use the technology. The code, how the platforms and the algorithms are designed to spread information around the world. And, of course, the laws, which have yet to really appear on the right. team, but are... On, on, on deck, right? So regulation from antitrust to privacy to free speech versus hate speech, we'll see, we're seeing it in the Congress. Those are really the four things that determine how we got here and also how we're going to get out of here. So, Sinan, um, so many different places we could go, and we kid you that we could talk to you for the next 60 minutes, but we really could because Jason and I are really into this. What is the smart conversation that lawmakers and policymakers and regulators need to be having on social media right now? The number one conversation that needs to be had, the first conversation that needs to be had, is about competition. And so the reason why we are in this mess in a part is because there is no incentive on the part of the largest social networks to change because they're not facing enough competition. Uh, and without competition, they don't have an incentive to provide societal values. They can just uh, pursue profit values and shareholder values. The way that we align the shareholder value with the societal values is to create competition in this market. Now, the first thing everyone thinks of when I say that is antitrust. Let's break up Facebook. But as I describe in the book, uh, there's a whole chapter on the economics of the market. This is a market that's replete with network effects, which means that the rich get richer. As more users get onto a platform, the value of that platform increases, sometimes exponentially. And so what we really need is structural reform of the social media economy itself, and that means interoperability legislation, data portability, social graph portability, identity portability. We need to make it easy for people to switch between networks, just like we did with cell phones, which worked quite well uh, in that market. And how easy is that to get done? I mean, we talk every day about the dysfunction of Washington, but I'm sure you talk to regulators and, and lawmakers all the time. Is there a growing consensus or at least a growing will or a, a realization that this has to be done? Well, so let's, let's understand why this is so important. The, uh, there are a number of market failures that are happening in the social media economy, from privacy to fake news mm -hmm. to hate speech, genocidal propaganda, and so on. None of these problems are solved directly by breaking up Facebook. In fact, they may make it harder 
to police many different Facebooks, and it doesn't really address providing privacy or reducing fake news or anything like that. Uh, by creating interoperability, we create the incentive to then solve these other market failures by having privacy legislation, by thinking about free speech and hate speech. As you say, we could talk about this for 60 minutes. Uh, in terms of is there a will, what I see is that there's a big push for antitrust and breaking up Facebook. But there's also legislation pending in Congress now, like the Access Act, which mandates portability for networks greater than 100 million people. That kind of legislation uh, is essential to whether we break up Facebook or not, we have to have interoperability. And the reason for that is because uh, that is what is actually going to create sustained competition in the long run. Competition is not a silver bullet. We then need to tackle each one of the market failures from privacy to fake news to hate speech one at a time. But it's the foundation of creating a sustainable change in this ecosystem. In the shorter term, Sanan, how worried are you about election interference and the role of social media as we are 50 days away or so from arguably the most important election of, in a generation? Well, think about it. In 2016, Russia spread manipulative messages to 126 million people on Facebook, 20 million people on Instagram, 10 million tweets to accounts with 6 million followers on Twitter, 43 hours of YouTube content on YouTube, and they are back at it right now as we speak, and they are much more sophisticated than they were before. And it's all happening now during a global pandemic with civil unrest in the streets stemming from the justifiable social movements around police brutality, but now you see violence in the streets, questions about uh, uh, voting from home, questions about voting in person. What Russia is doing now is they're nudging real American citizens to spread misinformation rather than impersonating them mm. because of platform policies around inauthentic accounts and banning inauthentic accounts. They've moved their servers to domestic soil to avoid domestic surveillance because our, uh, our intelligence services are more limited in what they can surveil on American soil. They've infiltrated Iran's cyber war department, perhaps to launch attacks through Tehran to make it look like it was Tehran. It's much more sophisticated in a much more uncertain moment in, as you said, the most important election in a long time, if not a generation or 100 years. I'm worried. I mean, I, yeah. I would ask, is that a rhetorical question? Of course I'm worried. I'm very worried. So, Sanan, um, there's nothing like, you know, the thinking of a crowd, right? And you write about the wisdom and madness of crowds. And I do wonder... You know, social media, it's so quick and easy to, to kind of whip up crowd enthusiasm for better, for worse kind of thing. How do, we, how do we get a better social media world? I know you talked about, you know, government involvement and having more competition. Is that the answer or is there other things that need to happen? Yeah, so there's a whole chapter on the wisdom of crowds and the madness of crowds all by itself. The wisdom of crowds depends on three things, independence, diversity, and equality. The only problem is that social media undermines all three of those pillars. The things that we need to do is not just about the government. There are four things that we can do, and that involves the money, the code, the norms, and the laws. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the code, we have to think about the design of the platforms and the algorithms themselves. And I go into great detail about how that could be changed to create better outcomes. We have to create the norms that support the societal values we want to see. We see that 
in the stop hate for profit movement. We've seen that norm setting and uh, on social media does work, but we've also been quite careless about our norms on social media. Uh, obviously, the money, the business models are another important factor. So, for instance, demonetizing ad revenue from fake news that affects uh, pandemic response is a good example. So not being able to run ads against coronavirus misinformation is something that has been done on some of the platforms, just as an example of the money. But there are many other uh, solutions there. Um, and obviously, so money, code, norms, and laws, I've covered all four of them. The book outlines what we do on all four dimensions. Right. Just just got 15 seconds. you got to be quick. Do you have hope that it can be a better social media world? Yes. Okay. Yes. We are at a crossroads now and between the promise and the peril. And the book describes how we achieve the promise and avoid the peril. Great stuff. Come back. Come back. We would yeah. love to talk more about this. You this give is so me cool. hope. The fact that people this smart are thinking about problems this big, uh, I really I feel a little bit better, it. all right, uh, about all of this, Carol. Yeah. All right, the book is The Hype Machine, How Social Media Disrupts Our Elections, Our Economy, and Our Health, and How We Must Adapt. Some great solutions in there from Sanan Aral. Congrats on the book. Professor of Management at MIT, Director of the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy. 